0: Now, I've got to ask, who here has seen the old Gene Wilder, Willy Wonka? All right, now i got to ask, which of you here under the age of 20 has seen the old Gene Wilder, Willy Wonka? Not the Johnny Depp, but the older one, right? Okay, a few of you. I- I'll just, I- I'm just going to make an apology to you on behalf of all parents here who have inflicted that on you, because, oh my gosh, talk about a nightmare on film. It Going back, looking at that, I mean, and Andrew was doing some, like, like editing genius. I mean, there's chickens getting their heads cut off and blood spewing around on that boat ride. I mean, It's go back and watch it. And you're like, no, mo- it's no wonder that those of us who are like 35 plus have turned out to be such a warped generation. I, I mean, so the bad news or the good news, depending on your perspective here, is that today might feel like that. Galatians is ramping up. It is going faster. It is getting weirder. It is pushing the envelope on what Paul is trying to say more and more. And if at any given time during today's message, you need to stand up and just shout out, is this a freak out? Like that little girl. We all understand, okay? Because Galatians will do that to you if you are tracking with what it's about. Now, we're picking up at the second half of chapter three, it's verse 15. We're only doing about 10 verses, three verse 15 to 25. And as always, I encourage you, have it open, be ready to look into it, be ready to take what I'm saying and matrix it against what it says in its own way to understand what this letter and God's message is all about. Paul is making an outlandish claim. The letter of Galatians is a big giant, outlandish claim where Paul is claiming you don't have to follow the laws of God. You are not under the Old Testament Mosaic law. You don't need to follow it to become a part of God's covenant people, and you don't need to follow it to get right with God. Rather, instead, we are a part of God's covenant people, and we become right with God because of what God has done for us in Christ, not what we do. This is the framework that all of Galatians is operating in. And in chapter three, Paul is drilling the point home more and more. He's not letting off the steam. He's pushing it. He's pushing it against pushback. He's pushing it against people trying to carve the edges. He's pushing against people trying to soften the blow. No, he says, to abandon what I'm telling you is the same as abandoning God himself. If you are trying to get to be a part of God's covenant people or right with God by doing this Mosaic law thing, you've traded not only the gospel, but you've traded God for no God at all. And so now in chapter three, Paul is gonna ask two rhetorical questions. And I'm gonna put these on the screen because... There's a lot going in in this chapter that you're like, what? Keep it anchored to these two rhetorical questions. If what you're saying, Paul, is true, then what then was even the purpose of the law to begin with? And number two, if the law seems to tempt people to follow it and people like to base their spirituality on it and it seems to drive them away from God... In effect, isn't the law opposed to the promises of God? As we go through today, keep these two rhetorical questions in your mind. Because this is what Paul is going to speak into. Put another way. If you are hearing these outlandish, radical questions or claims, I should say, of Paul in Galatians, like I've just summarized today, and you're starting to push back with questions like, going like well, so wait a minute, does it like, not matter what I do? Does this mean I can do whatever I want? Does this mean God doesn't care? Does this mean that, that all of these rules and all of these laws and all of these commandments have no relevance anymore? then you're asking the right questions. You're asking the very questions Paul is anticipating that not only you, but his original hearers and detractors would be asking as well. I would argue this may be the most fundamental, most relevant, most important point of understanding the Christian life that you can ever come to terms with. Because it stands behind all of these sub-questions That we ask, how am I supposed to treat my spouse in this situation? What does God want me to do when this happens? I'm standing at a crossroads in life, and I don't know which path to go. Which does God want me to choose All of these ethical questions, all of these spiritual questions, all of these questions that relate to what the God-pleasing or holy life looks like that Christians seem to emphasize at least officially from church platforms and pulpits. Well, all of it comes down to this central question. What does God want me to do? Because Paul, it seems like you're saying God really doesn't want me to do anything. If it's all you and not me, what then are you following? That's the journey that we're going to take today. And so I want to read Galatians 3 to you, just so we have familiarity. It won't all fit on the screen. You'll have to listen or follow along, but let's read it. And then you're gonna see it gets thick and we're gonna do a couple of things. First, I'm going to give you the short answer that Paul gives to these questions. But second, I'm gonna take you on the boat ride. And the boat ride is through how the New Testament and particularly Galatians reframes what God-pleasing living and the holy life looks like. Put another way. What does God want me to do? How do I know? And does it matter? I'm going to do it in one shot for you today, and it's going to be heavily teaching-oriented. I encourage you even to take notes or Follow along because even though Paul will flush this out through the entire letter of Galatians, when we try to do things over several weeks, well, we lose the train of thought and things get forgotten. So trying to get this entire framework in one session is important because Christians, those of you who are Christians in particular, I find that this is one of the most confused things among you and you just got to know it. And for those of you who don't consider yourself Christians, I find this to be the most misunderstood aspect of what Christianity is about. And hopefully it helps you against everything you've been led to believe. See what the Christian journey is truly about from the biblical standpoint. That again, I think is far different than what you'd expect. So Galatians 3, let's read. Picking up at verse 13, verse 15, rather, it says this. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises that he spoke about earlier in Galatians were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say unto his seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this? The law, introduced four hundred and thirty years later, after Abraham, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. Is the boat going too fast already? Mm Mm-hmm. gets worse. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Are you ready to get off the boat yet? (laughs) Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promise of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised being given through the, through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners to the law, locked up until the faith should be revealed, so the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law, what are Are you talking about what is going on? I know what the words mean individually in English. They make no sense when they're put together. I have no clue what your train of thought is and what the heck is happening here. That's where I want to take you today. What I want to do is help you navigate a deep, dark forest. I want to help you go through Willy Wonka's tunnel with all kinds of surreal craziness going on around you in the text that you can't even keep up with, let alone figure out what it means or why it's there. And somehow, if you'll trust me as your guide, take you on a path through that tunnel to help you see what Paul is getting at with what might be the most important, relevant, foundational set of questions we ask about the Christian life. So back to the questions. What then was the purpose of the law? It's the first one he asks. If we are saved and made right with God and part of the covenant people of God through the blessing given to Abraham, then why the law to begin with? What then was the purpose of the law? I don't know if you picked up on it, but here's how I would summarize it. Paul says the Mosaic law was a temporary measure You ever think of the word of God that way? Temporary. Those of you who are Bible-believing, who are devoted Christians, give you hives a little bit to use language like that. Well, if you're Bible-believing, then read Paul. Because he says the law was a temporary measure. Did you notice how often He used the word until. The law was given until, he says in 319. It held us prisoners until, he says in 322. Until, until, until. And then he counters it with words like this. But now, now, now. Beforehand, he'll say, but then. The Mosaic law, the anchor of the people of God which define them he says was a temporary measure. In 3 verse 24, it's my favorite, he'll even call the law a babysitter. Now, depending on the translation that you're using, it might come out in different ways. Those of you who are following, like, let's say the NIV, especially a 2011 edition, which would be like maybe on a phone app or something like that, it'll probably say, like, guardian, is that correct? Now, if you're an old school NIV user like me using the 1984, it doesn't even use language like that at all. It just says something like this. It says, Before this faith came, we were held prisoners up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. It was put in charge is how it would put. But I encourage you, explore some other translations. See how other translations put this language for what the law is. King James calls it a schoolmaster. Love that. The ASV, if you're really old school, calls it a tutor. The NRSV, the ESV, and that entire heritage will call it a disciplinarian. Things like the NASB, the NLT, the 2011 NIV, which I suspect many of you are using, I said earlier, puts it Guardian. But I love how the message puts it overall, and I want to read this to you. The message translation, I think, makes it clear. Until the time, until until the time when we were mature enough to respond freely in faith to the living God, we were carefully surrounded and protected by the Mosaic law. The law was like those Greek tutors, with which you are familiar, who escort children to school and protect them from danger or distraction, making sure the children will really get to the place that they are set out for. Isn't that great? And then he concludes the statement by saying this. Now that faith has come, we're no longer under the supervision of the law. Now that faith has come, you no longer need a babysitter. Which of you has ever hired a babysitter (laughs) or leveraged your kids? or your mom, or your sister, and the rest of you need to get out more. <laughs> For the few of you who did, who have, why do you do it? Why do you do it? Maybe you're afraid. Maybe you're afraid, what if something happens and they don't know how to handle it while I'm gone? But what if you're not afraid of the externals and more of your child itself? What are they going to do because they're, well, quite frankly, idiots while I'm gone? We hire babysitters, don't we? We hire babysitters because we do not yet think that someone is ready to do it on their own. Would you agree? Which of you has ever had a babysitter? I have. It was great when they were female and hot. <laughs> Babysit me anytime time that way, right? <laughs> but it often didn't work out that way. Did you ever have one and go, wait a minute, I don't need this anymore? Did you ever resent your parents for forcing you to have a babysitter? I'm old enough. I know what I'm doing. I can take care of myself. And yet, mom and dad weren't quite ready to let go. Now, imagine yourself. You're sitting here today. You have kids of your own. You're in your 20s. You're in your 30s. You're in your 40s. You're in your 50s. Imagine if you still had to have a babysitter. It's absurd. But those of you who are clinging, and some of you need it. Yeah, I know. But those of you, especially if they're older and hot, but those of you who are clinging to the law are doing exactly that. That's what Paul is saying. The law was a babysitter, a temporary measure for a certain period of time when Israel was not ready to take care of themselves. But now that faith in Christ, in God's seed has come, you are old enough. You are mature enough. You are no longer under the supervision of the law. You don't need a babysitter anymore. And for every moment you run clinging and running back to one, what you are saying is I am so spiritually immature that I need someone to come take care of me. Give me the law, God. Tell me what to do. I'm a baby. I don't know yet. Ooh, that is teeth, doesn't it? Because which of us haven't been in that position going, God, tell me what to do. And while he's saying, grow up. Grow up and figure it out. Because isn't that really what the difference between childhood and adulthood means? Being equipped, being ready, prepared, trained, conditioned, and every other kind of word I can put out there around it, right? To be able to figure out how to navigate life, to respond to emergency, to do what's right. In those times and places where the uniqueness of the curve balls that life throws us, leaves us wondering what to do, Paul makes it clear the law was a babysitter, a temporary measure until faith in Christ should appear. So, wait a minute. this now, I'm curious, like this, this what, like what? Kind of moment. So if it's temporary, does that mean I no longer have to follow God's law? Right? Are, are you there? Are you asking it? Are you wondering it? Okay. Does it mean I can do what I want? Are you there? Are you asking it? Is it relevant? Wait, how do I know? How do I know what's right and wrong and what God wants me to do? Are, are you there? Are you asking it? Is it relevant? If you're asking these questions, you are interpreting Galatians correctly because this is exactly what Paul expects you to be asking. So now for the boat ride. And you're going to have to imagine me putting on my Willy Wonka hat. And I'm going to share with you how Galatians answers these questions not just in these 10 verses in chapter 3 but throughout because I think it's an important foundational central enough questions that we need to kind of have it in a digestible chunk even though the boat is going to go fast and you are going to be terrorized and you are going to see things and feel things that you don't like and you're going to wonder where I'm taking you but stay with me because God will push you out of your comfort zone but he doesn't because there's something better at the end of the tum- at the end of the tunnel So, what I'm going to outline for you today on the screen is several bullet points. Now, as I flash them up, I'm going to explain what I mean by them. I'm going to give examples. I'm going to flush them out. And I doubt that you'll remember all of that. But I'm hoping that it contextualizes and helps make sense this outlandish claim that Paul is making. So the first is this, and I've said it already, but we need to beat the dead horse. As believers, we are not under the law. And when Paul talks about the law, what he is referring to is not like zoning an ordinance in McHenry County or or like the speed limit laws or something like that. He's talking about the Old Testament Mosaic commands, that good stuff given at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments and all the 613 points of the law that cover the back half of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, all of those commands of how God wants us to live and who God wants us to be that define the covenant people of God. Say it with me. As believers, we are not under the law, which means that if you are trying to make a case for what's right and wrong in this world or decide what to you, any any direct appeal to an Old Testament command is misguided. This is why we as Christians are not obligated to follow all of these strange dietary laws. Don't eat shellfish. Don't eat pig. Don't eat crow. Still feels pretty good, doesn't it? But, but you can if you want. It's why we're not obligated to follow all these strange ritual laws. Killing goats and sacrificing birds and slaughtering oxen. It's why we're not Call to all these other strange ones, like don't wear clothing woven of two kinds of material, don't cut the hair at the edge of your beards. It's why something like referencing Leviticus 29 18, where it says, Don't tattoo your bodies, cannot serve as any kind of basis for whether you should get a tattoo or not. Because we are not necessarily bound by those commands, we are not under the law. And it's not just the little ones. It's not just the weird ones. Shockingly, surprisingly, it's the big ones and the most important ones too. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. There's some who will argue, well, no, I know we're not under those weird laws, but we're still supposed to follow the Ten Commandments. Guys, do you realize that that's part of the Mosaic commands too? And really, are you consistent with it? Not with doing it. Of course not. But with believing that you're supposed to follow it, which of you honors the Sabbath and keeps it holy? And I'm not saying changing into Sunday because Sunday isn't the Sabbath. Which of you takes the seventh day and does not work on it to keep it holy? Because that's the command. Which of you does it or values it or says that's the way I'm supposed to live? Which of you here just gets all morally just indignant at the sight of a stained glass window or a children's Bible or a Sunday school art project or some Etsy craft in your home that depicts Jesus or the image or power of God. You shall not have any graven images. It's command number one or two, depending on how you number them. So, even there, we're cherry picking. As believers, you are not bound by the commands of the law. Period. And now here's the kicker even though we're free from the law, we can still sin. Go with me on this. Sin is is fundamentally defined as defying what God intends. It's going against his desires, his wishes, his will. It's rebelling against his way. It's distorting or perverting his good created order and intention of things. Sin can be marked by what we do and don't do. But sin can also refer to the condition of who or what we are. Two very common Old Testament metaphors used to describe sin is the first is missing the target, missing the mark. Like you're aiming for something, right? And you just miss it. Like I'm trying to do this, but kind of bungled that one, or it it, it didn't really hit, I didn't really kind of hit what God is commanding there. But the other, I think, is equally, if not more significant, being a warped or twisted version of something that God has made straight. So when we sin, we sin by missing and not doing something that God commands us to do or not do, we could say, or by distorting and twisting that which God intends, even becoming a distorted or twisted version ourselves as opposed to who God designed and made and hoped for us to be. Now, this is important. The fundamental nature of what God wants, his likes and his dislikes, they are eternal. Eternal. They are the same. They are the same back then as they are today, as they will be until Christ comes again. What God wants is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that means that which is fundamentally sinful and that which is fundamentally righteous or God-pleasing always remains the same as well. Now, this transcendent desire of what God wants, it certainly is reflected in the Old Testament law, but it's not identical to it. You might find an undercurrent of it there, but it is not one and the same. It exists independently. God's desires... God's wants, his definition of right and wrong, it it, it operates space independently of the Old Testament law. It existed before the Old Testament law. It exists after the Old Testament law. Incidentally, this is why people like Adam and Eve could sin, even though they had no law. It's why Cain could sin, even though he had no law. It's why people like Abraham could sin, even though he lived 500 years nearly before the Mosaic law was ever given. So, why the Old Testament law then? We're back to the question. It was given as a temporary measure. It was given as a temporary measure to bring clarity and application To the people to whom it was written. And unless you came out of Sinai and were part of that people of God before the coming of Jesus, it was not written to you, it was given to be their babysitter. They're coming out of pagan Egypt. They're coming as a new nation. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to function. They needed laws. And it was given to protect them from themselves, to curb them in, but to also reflect to them their nature in standing before God and truly his standards and how they paled in comparison in their own sinfulness. 1 Corinthians 9 has a great way of putting this, because it doesn't apply to believers today, but that isn't to say principles of what God wants don't apply to believers today. Put another way, we are not bound by the Mosaic law, by the Old Testament law, but there are still things that God wants us to do that are in accord with his desire and will, and that's why we can still sin. Let me read this passage from 1 Corinthians 9 to you. Paul says it like this. Though I myself am free. Free from what? No, the law. The law. Though I myself am free. And he goes on and says, belong to no man. I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I become like a Jew, doing all those Jewish kinds of things to win the Jews. To those under the law, I become like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I become like one not having the law. Though I myself am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law, which, of course, poses a problem. How, then, do we know what God actually wants? Because if we're not under the law, but we can still sin, and what constitutes sin is not able to be extracted from the law in a clear just read the words kind of way, how the heck, how the heck do we know? How do we know what sin is if we just can't cherry pick verses out of the Bible? And here's where you're gonna get hives. Because the New Testament answer to this question is so different than what I think many of you think. It is so different than what many of you who have been lifelong Christians expect and so different than those of you who aren't Christian assume Christianity is about. How do you know? Here's Paul's answer. Galatians will say, you'll know because it's obvious. That's it, guys, go home. (laughs) According to Paul, no fool needs to be told the difference between right and wrong. You know. You know because it's obvious. Have you ever noticed how whatever culture it might be, Whatever time period it might be, whatever religion or non religion it might be, how similar the laws of this world in our history actually are. I mean, you could do studies of the Jewish law up against the Code of Hammurabi and every other ancient Near East kind of codex that's out there. You know what? They all say you shouldn't kill, they all say you shouldn't steal, they all say you shouldn't commit adultery. There's nothing revolutionary about this. Why? Because we know it's obvious. No fool, according to Paul, needs to be told what's right and wrong. Right and wrong are obvious. Sin is obvious. What God wants is obvious, even to those who have never heard the law. So when Paul talks about sin, notice this in the New Testament. He rarely seems have the need to prove what it is have you noticed this the new testament never really gives a legal code it never really gives a comprehensive codes of commands of do's and do nots for a christian oh you'll find lists and samplings and examples look at uh, colossians 3 look at galatians 5 look at romans 1 start comparing some of them but you're going to find none of the lists are identical Because what Paul is doing is just sampling. He's sampling from a pool of that which is obvious in this world about what is right and wrong and what pleases God. Incidentally, this is why God can righteously judge people who have never heard. Because they don't need the law to tell them what's right and wrong in this world. Whether you've grown up in a home with 400 Bibles stacked around you being dragged to church two times a week or grew up in the metaphorical 17th century African bushgrass hut before missionaries ever got there that people like to use as an example, it doesn't matter. Because right and wrong, according to Paul, are obvious. Galatians chapter 5. Read it for yourself. And that's the problem, isn't it? Because what seems so obvious to Paul doesn't always seem so obvious. Can I ask, is it obvious to you? At all times and in all ways? Certainly some of the time. But is that what constitutes sin? Is that what honors God? Is that what what marks the God-pleasing life? Is it always obvious to you? You know, at this point, what I want to do is I want to take an example. I want to take an example because what the New Testament calls obvious doesn't always feel so obvious. Here's the one I chose because I think it's applicable to nearly all of us. The New Testament will often warn against sexual immorality. It's interesting that it never really defines what sexual immorality is certainly not to the degree that I think we would appreciate. It just warns against it. I think it's an area of temptation we all face, have all faced, and I think it's obvious to most of us, if not all of us, that there is a sexual ethic that exists. That we can do right by sex and with sex, and we can do wrong by sex and with sex. That sex is good, it's a gift of God, but it can be abused, it could be misused, it could be twisted, it could be perverted, right? And so all of us, I think, have a sense that what we do sexually matters. And that it not just matters to us in society, but it matters to God. So... Let's go through it. It says it's obvious, Galatians 5.19. Let's take three examples from today. Let's talk about homosexuality. Let's talk about sex before marriage. And let's talk about divorce and remarriage. Three examples that can all be gleaned from the Old Testament. Now, I would say that homosexuality, is still an obvious sin to, others, to some, but it's not an obvious sin to others. And certainly society has widely come to embrace it. Let's take sex before marriage. It's a sin that I find Christians and churches love to condemn, despite the very fact that many of those who love to condemn it are guilty of practicing it themselves. Let's take divorce and remarriage, something that Jesus speaks to more head-on and more clearly than sex before marriage, by the way. It can seem obvious, and yet the church just widely accepts it as a normal part of reality today. How do you navigate it? Because what the New Testament calls obvious doesn't always feel so obvious, and we can add to it. How far is too far? You know, before you're married, which of us who were followers of Christ when we met that special someone didn't sincerely ask that question? How far is too far? Have you ever noticed the Bible doesn't say What about things like masturbation? Pornography. What about marital situations where it isn't related to infidelity, as Jesus will say is an acceptable reason to divorce, but it's related to something like abuse? Or simply because the relationship has become so toxic that it feels like anything is better and it's obvious we should get out even though there isn't a scriptural mandate. Are you with me? And we could heap on hundreds and hundreds of other examples that we face in our day-to-day life, trying to figure out, God, how do I honor you? How do I please you? And how do I guard myself from sin? You can read 1 Corinthians 7, started verse 12 to see how Paul himself even struggled with this. And hopefully I've set up the problem more clearly that what the New Testament calls obvious doesn't always feel obvious. And what Paul will bring us to near the end of Galatians is that that is exactly why we need the self-corrective work of the Holy Spirit. It's why we need the Spirit of God in our life. And the way that Paul will describe it, the Spirit of God working through what I like to call the trifecta of Scripture, conscience, and the church. A three-pronged way by which the Spirit speaks and acts and moves and lives and tries to guide us into knowing the heart and will of God by spending time with Him personally. Because either one of these, any one of these by themselves can go off the rails because Scripture can be misunderstood, misinterpreted. Or you can read it like Galatians 3 and just go, huh? We can sear our consciences. And the church in any given day or age can be guilty of cultural or group think. So he works through all three, intention, walking alongside of us, but then we cry out, but just tell me what to do. Can I ask you a question today? Could you imagine a relationship with a person you love? being based on just tell me what to do. Now, husbands, we've, we've desired this at times. And wives, we have too. There is a benefit to being told what to do. But could you imagine if the foundation of your relationship with that person was laying out something that looked like binders of zoning and ordinance code about how we're going to navigate the relationship? No. God says, here's my spirit. Spend time with me. Get to know me. Grow up beyond small questions of just tell me what to do so I can get on with my own life and root yourself in me like this is a relationship that matters because the more you do, the more you'll get to know the heart of God. And the more it will become painstakingly obvious to you What lights him up? What turns him on? What puts a smile on his face and brings joy to his heart? What gets him angry? What gets him cold? What turns him off? Just like any other relationship you have. Now that faith has come, Paul says you no longer need a babysitter. It's time to navigate the relationship with God by his spirit instead. And we need him because we're all susceptible to missing the obvious. I can talk about that at length. There's all kinds of reasons we do. The Bible calls it hardness of heart. We miss it. Because we don't like what we're sensing. And we like our sin and we don't want to give it up. Or maybe we've simply become accustomed to it. Or maybe we're simply immersed in a different narrative. With the culture or our family or our friends or someone telling us this story that starts to condition us in a different way. We can go on of other examples of why we might miss it, but thanks be to God that he sends his spirit to guide us through it. That's Paul's answer to the law. And more than the law, to the Christian life. And more than the Christian life, how to live in a relationship with God no legal code required that's what the christian journey right there at the bottom is all about and through that he'll shape us and guide us and mold us and convict us and clarify to us not only what his will is but what's so obvious to him now, if you didn't keep up, <laughs> I get it. That's a crazy tunnel. But the good news is we're going to keep going through Galatians where or Paul will flush this out more and more. And I put an outline together too. If you want to pick it up, you can get it at one of the tables. On the way out, if you just want to kind of hear what I've put down along with scripture references, don't take my word for it. Search it out for yourself. It'll be made available online later, too, for those of you who are listening. But now we're going to sing a song. It's called Becoming. I invite the band to come up. Let me read the opening lines to you I am miles from where I was, yet so far from where I want to be. With each step, I learn to trust. The maker is still making me. And I am becoming. I am becoming. God is doing a work in you. Paul will say, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. To knowing the mind of God, the heart of God, the will of God. Embracing the most of a relationship with God and living towards his delight in this world. May the song be a cry for that, a response to that, an affirmation of that, maybe a prayer to say, Lord, I know that you have done so much in my life, but make me fully. Or God, I don't even think I can get on the train. How could a person like me? No, the message of Galatians is especially a person like you. Maybe it's just a first time cry, Lord, just, I don't like it. <sighs> Take me. Shape me. We're all becoming May the Spirit of God meet you in this time and place.